Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. This is a really fascinating text. It... um, it's very nuanced in so many ways, and, and I'd love to spend just a whole lot of time just working through every little detail and aspect of it. But I want to extract instead just one thought from this text, the one thing that is necessary. Hopefully, 10 months from now, that'll be a different necessary thing. But right now, my heart is to share with you what I believe is the one necessary thing for us in this moment. You know, one of the great struggles in life is is trying to sort out the difference between that which is pressing and that which is necessary. Do you understand what I'm talking about? In life, sometimes it's the immediate that gets all of our attention. And and often the immediate, it can distract us from what's imperative. This is best put as a a tension, right? It's a tension between what needs to be done and what must be done. And, And sometimes those are two different things. Charles Hummel describes it in his book this way, it's the tyranny between the urgent and the important. The urgent often distracts us and overwhelms us. And so sometimes in life, urgent things, they assault us, they assail us, and It's almost like it's at every turn we find some pressing thing, some immediate thing, some urgent thing, and time and time and time and time again we're confronted with these things, and it often distracts us from the important things. These are the things in our life that are of greater significance. Now, Charles Hummel wrote this book in... 1994, way back in the old days. And he pointed to the single greatest culprit of this as the telephone. The telephone, right? If only that were our only distraction. I remember reading once, imagine someone comes to you and says, we're going to put this little box in your house. And anytime this box makes any noise at all, you have to stop immediately everything that you're doing and go pay attention to that box. The article that I read said, now how many of us would have said yes to that proposition when 
presented this way. Man, I'd go back to a flip phone in a heartbeat, right? And so I wonder if Charles had written the book today, what would he talk about that distracts us? that seems so pressing and seems so urgent that it's really keeping us from what's important. I love this story. I love this text. I love what's happening in here. And I just want to tell you right off the bat, and if you want to talk about this some more, if you have questions, send them to questions at eastsunshine.org. I just want to tell you before the anything else happens that Martha is not the villain of this story. And Mary's not the hero. There's something deeper, there's something greater that's going on in this event. So Jesus and his followers, the 12 disciples, they're traveling and they're on the way to Jerusalem. Luke tells us three times in chapter 9 that Jesus, he has set his face toward Jerusalem. And what this means is that he has resolved, he has determined that even though he knows what waits for him in Jerusalem, he's determined to go. So if you determine to get better grades, if you determine to lose weight or to learn a language or to learn how to play an instrument, when you have this resolve to do that, you're setting your face toward that. What it means is that you're turning your attention towards this, and that's where we find Jesus in Luke chapter 9. It's interesting that the first nine chapters of Luke, they they encompass pretty much the bulk of the life of Jesus. And from about the middle of chapter 9 forward, it's one week in his life. One week. And Luke has, you know, 24-something chapters. All that devoted to the final week of Jesus on life. And it's really interesting because Luke is, in his own way, giving us a sense as to what is most important for Jesus, what's necessary. And so Jesus and his followers, we presume it's the twelve, they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they arrive in the village of Bethany. We saw you from the village. Bethany is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And, and its proximity to the Mount of Olives makes this the perfect place for Jesus to spend the last week of his life because he will often withdraw to a solitary place to be by himself. And the Mount of Olives seems to be one of his preferred choice locations. And so they arrive into this village of Bethany and he goes to the house of Martha. Now the text tells us, if you noticed, that he entered the house of a woman named Martha. Martha owns the house. She's the older sister of Mary, and she's also a sister of Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, we see this wonderful detail that, that, that John the writer tells us that Jesus loves Lazarus, and he loves Martha, and he loves Mary. And so he finds in the home of Martha the hospitality and the, the home that he never had. It's almost as if his, it's his home, away from home. And he finds in this home Martha's attention to detail, Martha's care, and the relationship that he has with Martha, with Mary, and Lazarus to be a source of comfort. That's where he wants to be on his last week on earth. 
So Martha, as our story goes, she's, she's busy, she's preparing the meal, and, and she's doing something that was a pillar of Jewish life, hospitality. This was a pillar of Jewish life. It was a foundation of Jewish life, that you provide hospitality, that you entertain. In, in fact, Judaism teaches that you should let your house be a meeting house for the sages, and you should sit amidst the dust of their feet, and you should drink in their words in thirst. Martha's doing exactly what she should be doing. In fact, Martha is providing the hospitality that Jesus tells his followers, the 72, that they should count on when they go into someone's house. I mean, it's almost as Jesus could have said, if you want to know the kind of hospitality you should expect to receive and you should stay in the house of a person who treats you this way, Martha is the shining example of that. So Martha's, Martha's doing what's expected of her. Martha is doing what her place at that time would have said she needed to do. And then there's Mary, the younger sister. If, if you're the younger sister and you have an older sister, you understand the dynamic between the two. And what Mary is doing, as the text tells us, is that she is taking a place at the feet of Jesus and is listening to his teaching. Now, Mary is the one that John tells us that I don't know if it's the same occasion or another, but at, at one dinner party, she anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, Mary's decision to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching, you have to understand that this represents a seismic paradigm shift. It really is. Because in Judaism, women did not study with a rabbi. In fact, the Mishnah says that if a man gives his daughter knowledge of the law, it's as though he has taught her lechery. Lechery is a strange word. It means excessive or offensive sexual desire, lust. So this is the time, this is the setting. The Mishnah also said that the one, in fact it says, he that talks to womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and thus inherits Gehenna. Words my parents spoke to me as I was headed off to college. <laughs> right? Luke uses a very interesting phrase to describe what Mary is doing right here. He says, Mary sat at the Lord's feet. This is a phrase that's used to describe a teacher-pupil relationship. A disciple sat at the feet of their teacher, their rabbi. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, the apostle Paul's words, but Luke is writing this, Paul says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel for his education, his instruction. So this is a bold move on, on Mary's part. 
And so while Mary is at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching, Martha alone now bears the responsibility of serving the meal. Mary is attentive to the teaching of Jesus, and Martha is distracted with serving Jesus. I mean, if you've ever thrown a dinner party, you, you know what's happening. You, you sympathize with what's happening here. I mean, you have the meal preparation and the delivery. You've got the serving. You've got the entertaining. I mean, that, that is burden in, its, in itself. Now, does she have a reason to be anxious and distressed? I think yes. We don't really know how many people are in her house right now. I mean, we hope it's not the 72 that Jesus brought along with him. You know, it's probably the 12 disciples, 12, Jesus plus 12. If it's just Jesus plus Peter, James, and John, whom he would normally take, I mean, that's one thing. But don't you see that just having Jesus plus one in your house is enough of a distraction? It's enough of a source of anxiety. And so burdened and distracted and anxious, the text tells us that Martha approaches Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care about me? Technically, this is not what we would consider a prayer. Uh, but the disciples of Jesus made that same prayer of Jesus. You remember? In Mark chapter 4, after a busy day of teaching, they get into a boat to go across and there's this violent storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples are overwhelmed by what's going on around them and they come to Jesus and they wake Him with these words, Lord, do You not care about us? I don't know about you, but I've prayed a prayer like that a time or two in my life so overwhelmed, so distracted by what's happening. I have been known to utter those same words. God, are you not watching? Are you not paying attention? Do you not care about what's happening? You see, it's from her burden, it's from her stress, it's from her distraction that Martha says, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. So here's, here's what I want you to notice. Mary was serving, was helping, was preparing until Jesus gets there. And then she leaves to go sit at his feet. And so what Martha is doing is that she is telling Jesus what he must say. And here we have Mary who is listening to what Jesus wishes to say. Now, Greek scholars tell us that this phrase, that these words used by Martha, they literally mean Jesus remind her of her place. Remind her of her place. Because a woman's place, according to this reasoning, was in the kitchen not sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Now, I want you to notice the response of Jesus to Martha, and I want you to notice beyond anything else that it's a response of tender affection. I've talked about this before, that in the Bible, when you see the double name, it's not scolding, it's love. It's affection. It's tenderness. 
So Jesus is not scolding Martha. He loves Martha. He's speaking tenderly to her. He's speaking words of affection. So even tone of voice is important right now. Martha. Martha. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, you're anxious and you're troubled by many things. Now, why would, why would we expect Jesus to say anything different to us right now? We're anxious and we're troubled by many things. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the one thing necessary. And, and this will not be taken from her. So, given a choice between serving Jesus and listening to Jesus, Jesus says, Mary has made the better choice. Again, I'd love to work through more things of this text, but I just want to ask right now, what is the one necessary thing that we need right now? See, I don't think it's changed. I don't think it's changed. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus now more than ever, and we need to hear His words. We need for His words to bear on our hearts. I don't know if you've noticed, but right now our world is filled with voices telling Jesus what He should say. What if we set aside the anxious distraction and just fixed right now on what Jesus wishes to say? You see, our hearts right now, they carry the tumult of the chaos around us. We're distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we're anxious about many things. And this, I fear, is keeping us from the heart of Jesus. What if it was the other way around? I mean, think about it. What if the things of Jesus, the words of Jesus, what if, what if prayer and spending time with Jesus, our relationship with Him, what if, what if Bible, Bible reading itself, what if, what if it flipped and, and those things kept us from other things? Okay, so... I was a youth minister a long, long time ago, and uh, I found myself in the office one day by myself, myself and the church secretary. There were no other qualified ministers available, and I was barely a qualified minister. The secretary comes into my office and says, there's a man here wanting to speak to a minister. No one else is here, so I guess you'll have to do. (laughs) Right? You know? How's that, you know? Can you imagine that? Well, we're, you know, we're down by six and the bases are loaded and there's two outs and we got nobody left, so I guess you'll have to do. I'm like, I got this. The man comes into my office and he sits down and he says, listen, the first thing I want you to know is that I'm not crazy. Now, what's the first thing you think of when somebody leads with that? You know, you're like, oh boy. He says, and this is what he told me, true story. I've started reading my Bible, and anytime I try to do something else, I get this prompt 
that I should be reading my Bible instead. So I'll read my Bible and I'll read my Bible and I'll put my Bible aside and I'll, I'll stop to watch television or to do something else or to read the newspaper and I'll get this prompt, read your Bible. And he goes, listen, I'm not crazy. And he, and he, and he stood up and you know, I'm getting nervous. And he goes, and he pointed out the window and he said, look, I, I'm, I, I have a job, I make good money. And he pointed to his Corvette in the parking lot as a sign of that. So I'm not crazy, I'm not unstable, none of that's going on. I just don't know what to do. Because every time I try to do something else, I get this prompt that I should read the Bible. This is a true story. And he goes, what do you think I should do? I think you should read your Bible. He goes, all right and gets up and walked out. Now, if I had been quicker, I would have said, and the Holy Spirit is telling me you should donate the Corvette to the youth minister. <laughs> See, what if, it ha- what if the tables were turned? What if it was our time with Jesus that was keeping us? What if that was the urgent thing in our life? And that was keeping us from other things. A couple of weeks ago, I suggested that we should be praying to see the beauty of the Lord because the more distraction we face in life, the more anxious we are, the more overwhelmed and burdened we are, the more we need to see the beauty of the Lord. Today, may I suggest that we also pray the words of Psalm 86, 11 through 12 which says, teach me your way, O Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Some translations, uh, they render, give me an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart. Psalm 86, verse 12 says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, everything that I have. And I will glorify your name forever. So this week, let me suggest that we take the words of Psalm 86, 11 through 12, and we incorporate that into our prayer time. And we ask the Lord for an undivided heart. This seems to me right now to be both the necessary thing and the pressing thing. This is both important and urgent. This is what must be done and what needs to be done. This is imperative. This is important. This is the thing we should be focusing on right now. So it would look something like this. I'm praying to see the beauty of the Lord so that my heart is captured by Him That with my whole heart, my undivided heart, I am bringing glory to His name. So, can I just ask that you think about what you say this week? Can I ask that you think about what you post, what you tweet, what you insta or what you rinsta? Can Can I ask you right now, would you ask yourself these two questions? 
Am I contributing to the distraction around me? Am I adding fuel to the flames of anxiety and desperation? Or am I bringing glory and honor to the one who gave it all? I'd just like to suggest with gentleness and tender affection that we try a different approach as the people of God. Wouldn't it be better if our posts brought honor and glory to our Lord? Wouldn't it be great if we could bring our work and our worship together and that we could honor the beauty of the Lord in this way? Wouldn't it be the best thing for us? Wouldn't it be the one necessary thing that what we're doing as those who are loved and who love, that we bring glory and honor to His name? So if you read through the Gospels, you will notice that Jesus attends a lot of parties. He does. I mean, he's, he's at wedding celebrations, he's at dinner parties and outside barbecues and picnics, he has meals with friends, he has meals with people who hate him, he has meals with difficult people, he has meals with sinners. I mean, time after time after time, he gathers in relationship and fellowship with people. And in his last meeting, in the upper room, there with his disciples, on the night that he was betrayed. He had set his face toward this moment on the night his mission to save the world began. At this final meal, he does three things. First, he promised, I won't eat this meal again until the kingdom that cannot be shaken comes. And then I'll eat it with you. Secondly, he washed the feet of his disciples. He extended to them the hospitality that was expected in their day. He showed the importance of serving in that moment. But third, he reminded his disciples of the single most important aspect of their relationship with each other and their relationship with the world. He said, here's how people will know that you belong to me. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof that you love each other. Let's pray. Father, each day that passes proves that we cannot do this by ourselves. We just can't. We're so caught up. We're so burdened. We're so anxious about what life throws us. It makes us even difficult people to be around. Lord, would you, would you crush our opinions? Would we be so captured by your beauty that, that we would be so drawn, so close to you that the breath of your words would sound upon our cheek? Because your glory, Lord, is so beautiful. Father, I pray that through your Spirit you would cause this truth to bear on our hearts so that our lives would bring you glory and honor to the one who gave it all. We bow in worship because your glory, Lord, 
is so beautiful. Through Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, our teacher, we pray. Amen.